Hi, everyone. My name is Chad Nitschke, co-founder and CEO of Bunker, and also host of this podcast, Ready, Set, Work. Ready, Set, Work is a podcast series focused on the future of work, specifically highlighting all different perspectives from the gig economy to on-demand platforms and more. Join us each episode to hear from thought leaders paving the way toward the future of work. Hey everyone, today I'm talking to a true expert on the gig economy. So Marion McGovern founded M Squared Consulting in 1988, before the gig economy was even a term, and went on to write two books on the changing workforce landscape. Uh, we're going to talk to her today about her most recent book, Thriving in the Gig Economy, as well as the insight she's gained through decades of experience. Um, and as a side note, uh, Marion, I'm not sure if you remember this, but when we first met, it was actually at a WeWork of all places, uh, so kind of fitting from a future of work perspective. Um, and Marion, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. It's a pleasure. I do remember that WeWork because I remember almost being hit by a ping pong ball because it was a Friday <coughs> afternoon, but... <laughs> True, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, so the, the future of work and ping pong, right? Yeah. Community. Community. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, cool. Well, maybe to get things uh, started, do you want to tell us a little bit about just how you got into the gig economy and just what your experience was back in, you know, the early 2000s and 1990s? Well, I had been with the consulting firm Booz Allen and Hamilton, which has since uh, split into two different firms, but. I was at Booz Allen and I saw the situation where the team of smart MBAs wasn't necessarily the right answer. And if you really had someone that had done this before, that could provide a much speedier result and at less cost. So I looked into the idea. I saw people jumping off the consulting train because they didn't want to live on planes anymore. And the same thing in the advertising world. And I thought, well, gee, you know, if there are people that are out there on their own doing this um, and companies could need it, could there be a business here? So like a good little consultant, I surveyed the marketplace and did focus groups. And lo and behold, everybody said, maybe, you know, maybe if there were really good gigs out there, I would join you, said the consultants. And maybe if you really had the people, I would do it, said the company. So I, with that, I kind of went and started. And um, lo and behold, there were actually already a lot of people out there, uh, independent experts with tremendous credentials, having, you know, making their own living as independent consultants. And back in those days, because this was the dark ages before we had the internet, um, you know, it was almost like speculators. The good ones could uh, stay out there and keep going. The bad, bad ones would run out of money and would have to go back to regular work. So the, the people that were actually doing it back in those days were like amazingly credentialed and accomplished. And so we kind of, I got started and the idea grew, although we did uh, have a lot of skeptics at the time. But over time, more and more people saw the, the value of the idea. And, um, you know, now I look back and think how... The whole idea has been validated by, thank you, the recent IPO of Upwork. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. And so I'm curious, like, what did M Squared Consulting kind of grow into then? Like, how did that evolve? Well, you know, I have to say it was, um, it was interesting because at first we had this amazing idea that we could be the resource for small and growing companies. And the challenge there was finding those small and growing companies. <clears throat> And I have to say, in a lot of the work we did, because we, we did work with you know, medium-sized companies, 
And oftentimes the engagements were much more interesting. You know, an interim COO for um, one of the largest makers of ambulance equipment. Um, that was like a really cool gig that that person did for, you know, nine months. Um, some turnarounds work that we did with companies. But the truth of the matter was big companies had big needs for independent talent as well. And the big companies became much more of an annuity stream. Um, so our business kind of developed into a, a specialty sector with independent and interim engagements and then much more kind of add to your project teams and add to your um, strategic engagement sort of focus with bigger companies. Interesting. Yeah. And I'm curious, just over the past 20 years then, um, and this might be a difficult question to, to kind of tackle, but what do you think some of the biggest changes are then that you've seen, uh, maybe, maybe just in terms of like attitude towards independent workers, um, both from like the enterprise that's hiring them and then just the, like the, the general public? Well, you know, I was, I was thrilled and somewhat surprised at the most recent um, collaboration, the Gig Economy Conference, which I know you guys were there too. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is the third year this has been happening. So, you know, one, we, the whole sector has its own conference now. Yeah. But um, there was a decided viewpoint on the part of the purchasing department folks that were speaking about the power of the talent, that now the leverage was in the hands of the talent. And that was a, a new and welcome message because the, the challenge starting in the um, mid 90s was figuring out how to help the hiring managers that really needed the talent. Because as I like to say, you have this, this alphabet soup of things that are happening in companies where you have the hiring manager on one end and the consultant that could help them on the other. And in between, maybe you have HR, but maybe not. Maybe you have purchasing. Maybe you have a, an MSP, which is a master services provider. Uh, or maybe you have a VMM, VMS, which is a vendor management system. So there were all these points of contact which could uh, fatigue a hiring manager uh, frustrate a hiring manager, and quite frankly, it resulted in the hiring manager trying to figure out how to go around this structure. So I can't tell you how many large companies where we just, you know, a hiring manager figured out, well, gee, I, I can just do it in this budget, and we'll just forget about that whole thing. Um, so that was a big, that has always been a big issue, and the idea that purchasing guys um, and that whole structure, you know, their job was to make sure it was the cheapest option for the company, so I appreciate that. But recognizing that this is an important resource to deliver to your client, and if the resource is going to cost, you know, more than you thought, you got to pay that. So that was that was, a, that was wonderful. One thing that I don't think has changed enough is the respect accorded the independence. I think there are a lot of people who still get the when are you going to get a real job. And people don't understand that this is a career choice for most independents. You know, depending on what study you read, there might be 65 million. Uh, it's a pretty round, decent number for all the different people that track it. Uh, independent workers out there, and 70% of them are doing this by choice. This isn't a default option. 
So they've made a bold step. They've been very kind of entrepreneurial, like the American spirit of I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do this on my own. And we should be celebrating that choice rather than saying, oh, that's just a consultant. You know, they're not as good as, as us, you know, the people who actually work for company XYZ. So I, I think as this becomes more and more a part of the, the agile corporation, which of course is the, the current hip term of art, the only way it's going to work is if everybody sort of trusts each other that we are equally competent. I may be external, you may be internal, but we are equally competent. We are going to make this project work. We are going to have the success together. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I'm curious, do you think that, have you seen that evolve, kind of that cultural connotation of, you know, a gig worker, independent worker? Um, do you think that has evolved? And then the next question would be, what do you think is missing for it to evolve uh, to the extent that it needs to? Well, you know, part of it is there is a, a bimodal distribution in the marketplace, if you will. You have the on-demand gig economy. You have the drivers and the delivery people and the unskilled labor task people uh, on one end. Actually, I'll, I won't say bimodal distribution. You have, you have a spectrum. In the middle, you have the, the skilled guys. You have the, the handymen, the uh, independent electricians, videographers, creative folks. And then you have the highly skilled people at the, at the far end of the spectrum. I think the unfortunate thing is many people only view the gig economy as the on-demand guys. And they don't recognize that there is this whole cohort, multiple cohorts of people with all sorts of different kinds of skills and credentials and accomplishments that are also working independently. So uh, a lot of the, the bad press and frustration gets focused on the on-demand side. And, you know, on the on-demand side, on the one hand, absolutely, there are uh, social safety net issues, but there's also a, uh, a lack of appreciation that for many, this is, a, this is another way to earn income. It is not the sole source of income. So it's not that, oh, the, you know, the poor Uber or Lyft driver can't really earn enough to make a full-time job. Um, it's that maybe they're a teacher during the year and they drive for Uber nights and summers. Um, so it, it, the idea that the gig economy has provided more ancillary income for a lot of people is kind of an unappreciated aspect. Yeah, and it, it does, yeah, and it's a really good segue too, because I know in your book you, you kind of make this distinction between you know what you just talked about, right? The gig economy, the sharing economy, and the on-demand economy. Um, and, and is that part of kind of what you think needs to take place is just more, I guess, recognition around the specificity of, of those and what those terms really mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, there, there's also a, a failure to, to recognize on some, some of the critics. Again, we, we do have this social net safety net problem, but, you know, if you look at cab drivers being the easiest displacement group, you know, it was often tough for a cab driver to make a living too. Mm -hmm. So, so it shouldn't be a surprise that it could be tough for, um, for a ride sharing company driver to do that. So, um, I, there is sort of an apples and apples challenge, but I think, you know, it, 
if you look at the idea that the gig economy, whether you're a, a professional or a um, someone just looking for extra income, there are so many new ways to get it. There are so many more organized ways. It used to be if you had to find extra income, you were kind of stuck. You know, now you can drive, you can walk dogs, you can be a caregiver. I mean, uh, there are there are a lot of options out there in a more organized fashion that makes it uh, easier for many people to do things. And many people do things remotely. You know, remotely you can have translation services, tutoring, and there are lots of things that can be done remotely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. You could almost do away with some of those, I guess, naming conventions or definitions and just think about it as like democratized work, right? Like to your point, there's a lot of different ways you can make money. There's more ways that you can make money today than it were, you know, 10 years ago. Um, and work is kind of being democratized. Um, and it just is a function of, you know, you get paid differently, you work differently, you could be on site, you could be remote. And like, it's just the options are much more plentiful today than they were. Yes, the democratized word, though, made me think of the uh, the governmental side of things. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mean it in that sense, but yeah. But it is unfortunate, you know, now that it's we're, we're just past the elections, um, it is unfortunate that a lot of our elected officials don't get it. Because there was a, um, uh, here in California, there were a couple of jurisdictions that wanted to put a, a an additional tax on the employees of large technology companies to be kind of a, have that tax be, fund the additional infrastructure and uh, roads, traffic, solve the traffic problems that were happening in Silicon Valley. And all I could think about with my gig economy hat on is, boy, you guys don't know what's going on. You don't want to tax employees. You know, at, at some level, uh, you know, I was at a, uh, a a conference recently where they were talking about remote work and the fact that um, one of the large technology companies ended up saving $230 million by allowing its employees, 80% of its employees to work remotely. And they, they reduced their real estate holdings. So, you know, all of a sudden it, it's not, should those employees who are working remotely be counted for that tax? And what about all the independent workers that might be working at those companies? So, you know, at, at some level, there is a, a a need for society to grasp what's going on. Yeah, definitely. And I think there's, yeah, it's kind of like the future of work train has left the station, but there's still some government officials that are still back at the train station <laughs> that haven't haven't really left. Uh, but the train the train's moving. Uh, so it will be interesting to see how that kind of evolves and what happens. So shifting gears a little bit, I wanted to dive into one thing that you talk about in your book, and I've actually heard you speak on this too on, on panels, uh, the topic of like marketplace algorithms, uh, replacing, you know, human instinct or strategic judgment in placing a candidate. Um, and, and I'm curious, do you think we're at a place where uh, that is possible? I think it, again, you have to look at that spectrum, spectrum expertise that, um, you know, in the on-demand world, I, I really don't care so much who's going to drive me to the movie theater. Yeah. Um, but in that middle area, do I want to talk to the videographer about my project? Probably. I, I want to have a sense of, you know, this is what I, what I want from you when you video me giving presentations or whatever it is. 
And then on the far end of the spectrum, absolutely, you want to have a discussion. So, um, so the question is, are the algorithms pointing up the right thing? Um, I think they are improving because they only improve by people saying yes and no to different opportunities. So the, so the more opportunities you're shown on a platform, the better the algorithm is going to get at you. But the other side of that is it's only as good as the underlying logic in that algorithm. So mm -hmm. for example, I can remember doing some projects where um, back in the day, banks wanted to become more product fo focused and were very interested in getting kind of product management groups up and off the ground. And I remember presenting a, and they definitely wanted financial services background and presenting someone to a major bank for this big, you know, strategic reorganization of the product management group that came from Procter and Gamble. And it's like, person has no banking experience whatsoever, but quite frankly, what they've done in P&G would be incredibly valuable. So do you want to consider this person too, even though they don't have the specs you want? And I think that view, creative view of, of talent and its transferability is something that would be tough to build into an algorithm. And when you look at the pundits who are talking about what people need in the future of work, they need to be adaptable. They need to operate across environments. You know, if that's true, how are the algorithms going to make any kind of conversion in their uh, mathematics about this environment could be just as valuable as that environment? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And um, do you think that, uh, so if you have kind of these more specialized roles, uh, one thing we've seen is a more kind of vertically focused approach to on-demand platforms. So, you know, an on-demand platform that's purely focused on medical technicians um, or, you know, examples like that. Do you think that plays also a part in um, like what, we, what you were just talking about? Uh, somewhat. You know, I am actually an advisor to a startup in the um, drug development space. So they are doing the experts and scientists and business experts in drug development and clinical trials. So not patients or anything, but these are the people that are doing the biostatistics and the regulatory affairs work, the filings, et cetera, et cetera. I think the um, part of the special sauce of this particular platform is they're really understanding how do you drill down into the details of a project to understand the precise expertise you need. So it's that precision that they bring to the, to the puzzle. Now, could a more generic platform find a regulatory affairs person for a big pharma company? Probably. Would they do it as efficiently and would they be able to vet the person as efficiently, I, I doubt it. So I'm a big fan, actually, of the, the specialty firms. Mm -hmm. um, I also think for, for that particular cohort, they like to be viewed together. And, they, and having that sense of community also provides a value to that group of consultants. 
So, I mean, I also see the value. Heck, I'm a, I'm a as part of the book, I joined bunches of these things and uh, mm-hmm. I joined a dozen of them, became a, a client of a bunch. And, you know, I'm, I, I'm a regular Upwork client for, you know, work on my website, work on direct mail stuff. Um, so it's valuable. And, but I, I don't think that they could do what, you know, LifeSci Hub is doing. Yep. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, yeah, and it's it's been interesting to kind of watch that trend. And I think that tr- my personal opinion is that that trend will continue of kind of more specialization. Um, and one thing in the book, you used this metaphor, uh, corporate step stool, which I really liked. Um, and I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about that to our listeners and just uh, what that represents. Well, again, sort of back in the day, um, there was a a barrier to entry uh, for us providing consultants because every company had their way of doing business. I remember, I mean, Kaiser, um, the large healthcare company, actually had not so much a glossary, but you know, there was there was a way they spoke, there was a way they did business. And this also translated into systems knowledge. So it was hard for us to place people if they didn't have inside knowledge of a lot of big companies. So that, that was part of that, you know, career ladder. You, you, you went up that ladder for 10 years and then you could jump off. You know, the advent of the cloud and the increasing use of technology that was similar has changed that. So, you know, you get Salesforce experience in one company, boom, you're, you're marketable as a Salesforce person potentially in another. You have Google AdWords in one company, boom, you can bring that expertise to another. So the, the increasing use of common platforms across companies, regardless of whether it's, you know, a marketing platform like Marketo or, you know, a, a CRM platform, whatever it is, means that there are earlier opportunities to get off that ladder. So, so you can kind of jump around and, you know, here I'll go to, I, I have my couple of years of background and I, as a sales marketer and I can uh, jump off because I know Salesforce and boom, over here I get to know Marketo so I can jump off over there. So it becomes much more of a skill building exercise where the skills are transferable across all sorts of enterprises as opposed to just unique to one. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think it's interesting because you could, on one hand, think of that kind of jumping around notion as a strength, right? That's a, that's a potential value because that worker's getting, you know, a variety of perspectives, um, you know, ver- versus kind of the more traditional way of thinking of things like I'm going to work for the same company for 20 years, um, you know, which, you know, might have some benefits associated to it. But um, I do think the, 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 the notion of jumping around just could potentially provide more value for the worker and then whoever is hiring that worker because they're getting different perspectives. Yes, I, I have to say that um, sometimes it was tough for us uh, with really experienced people, not so much because they didn't have the, the expertise, they might not have the consulting skills. So they might not understand that you, you do different things when you're working with a client than you do with, as an employee. So, you know, when you're, when you're working as an employee and you're working on Project X, if your boss comes in and says, do Y, you do it. If you're a mm-hmm. consultant and you're working on X and the client says, do Y, you, say, you should say, sorry, no, we, 
that's not part of the engagement. We can renegotiate it or that can be another phase, but I need to finish this first. And that is that was always harder for more senior people to get than um, more junior people. But again, back in the day, most everybody was 10 to 15 years experience. And now there are a lot more independents that are out there that are in more junior parts of their career, shall we say. Yep. Yeah, and then, um, so this is something that you touched on earlier, and you talk quite a bit about it in your book um, as well, but the social safety net and kind of benefits element, you know, that gets quite a bit of discussion um, in the media and in the workplace today for independent workers. And I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you look kind of a few years down the road, do you have thoughts on maybe what that might look like or ultimately, like, what, what do you think it should look like? Well, you know, I, I am hopeful um, that we will get some version, some strength back in the Affordable Care Act. You know, the Affordable Care Act was a, a big deal when it came out for independence, not uh, unsurprisingly. There is a tension in some sectors of the federal government about the idea that we do need to do something up on this issue. Uh, Senator Mark Warner had a bill about uh, trying out portable benefits for people, the idea being that benefits would travel with the person and not be associated with uh, a company. So these are tr more traditional uh, medical benefits and retirement benefits. Um, of course, things don't happen in Congress that well. However, things are also happening at the state level. So I guess I have some optimism that the, the marketplace will come to, with it with answers will come to solutions because you kind of can't wait for the government not to sound mm -hmm. too uh I'm not, I'm not a libertarian or anything it's just that um it, it, these are tough choices that that people have to make and it's hard for them to to make wholesale change but i think quite frankly just like bunker came up with a with a solution around a part of the marketplace that wasn't working for the gig economy for the professional side, you know, coming up with cost-effective professional liability insurance. I mean, that was incredibly um, valuable to, especially that most experienced end of the of the marketplace. Um, other people will do that too in other ways. You know, you have a very different kind of gig economy company called Shift Pixie, which is also public, and Shift Pixie, they work at the the lowest level of contract workers, which is people in the hospitality world who work for Denny's and McDonald's and you know other restaurants as shift workers, and they can't get enough shifts with those restaurants to have full-time benefits. So Shift Pixie created an, an app and a system which assigns them, you know, maybe at their choice based on their own you know life and what they need to do with their their life you know getting kids to school or whatever it is to uh you know four days at mcdonald's and three days at denny's and two days at arby's and then they qualify for benefits as a shift pixie employee so a creative solution where the the, the restaurants the hospitality industry is happy to have somebody else dealing with filling their shifts and onboarding the people and they're happy to have employees who or contract employees who have benefits. I mean, it, it's kind of a win-win for everybody. So I think there will be other interesting solutions that will that will come down the, the pipe. 
from the entrepreneurial side of things. Yeah, definitely. So I'm kind of curious if you were, let's say you were hypothetically starting a company today to like solve a problem. Do you, I mean, do you have anything in mind that you would, that you think that needs to be solved uh, kind of related to that or? Oh, should I give away my ideas? <laughs> you don't need to, so no pressure, but. Well, I have to say, as I was <laughs> joining all of these groups and it was a, uh, a company that um, has since changed their name, I should say. But early on, their, um, their qualifying factor was that everybody was an MBA from a good school. And the way they qualified you into their pool initially or into their platform initially was using your email address from your MBA program. So I uh, sent them a very polite email saying, you know, I, I did go to the Haas Business School but I went before email was invented. So I don't have a Haas email address. Is there some way I can still join? And I received back an absolutely uh, contrite message that was clearly tailored to me. This was not boilerplate. So it was clearly tailored to me of, gee, we're so sorry, don't worry, you're in, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it made me realize that, you know, one, there probably wasn't anybody over 35 in that management team. And two, my cohort was not joining the platform. Now, again, this was two and a half years ago now, at least. Um, and I, I know for a fact that they have far more senior consultants than they did back in the day. But, you know, there is this notion of you have a very experienced cohort of boomers, who many of whom are, are like me. I'm a gig person myself. You know, I'm on a bunch of corporate boards. I consult. I write books. Um, and we have expertise to offer. So there isn't really a platform out there just for us. Yeah. Well, that's really interesting. And yeah. The former CEO of Joie de Vie Hotels, who went into... Um, Airbnb as kind of a senior advisor just wrote a great book, which, you know, I was a, a reader of, and it certainly spoke to me called Wisdom at Work. And it's all about the making of, you know, a modern elder, but kind of the role for senior expertise in um, kind of advising young companies and, and helping enterprises grow. So, so I think there is sort of a an interesting opportunity out there, but there's also the, you know, as I actually had a focus group on it with a bunch of people, one person said, but I don't want to be labeled as old. It's like, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely no, no replacement for experience, right? Like you, you just have perspective that, you know, if you don't have that, that experience that uh, somebody lacks. So, well, and as we, as we, you know, we've got this economy where there isn't enough labor to go around. And, you know, 60 is the new 40, et cetera. So, like, how long will certain people continue working? Yep. And you do have a very educated managerial class of, of senior folks. So figuring out a way to deploy that. We'll see. There it is. So there, there's the big idea. And the other big idea, which, is, which apparently people are working on, is creating mortgage instruments that are not dependent on W-2 income. Mm, yeah, that's true. That's yeah, that's a big problem. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are looking into this, hmm. 
But, you know, this is a big problem for a lot of people. I mean, talk about mm-hmm. home sales, real estate agents. Real estate agents are independent contractors. They don't have W-2s. True. Yeah. So, and a lot of real estate agents make a lot of money. Yep. So, um, so, so that is, I, I can't tell you how many people uh, or how many over the years that we had to verify income for, for mortgages. And we would say, look, you know, this is 1099, but the fact that they earned six figures for three years through us, why isn't that better than a W-2? You know, you could, yep. you could be fired tomorrow. So what's the magic of a W-2? Yep. Yeah, it's a great point. And it's another good example of, you know, financial services not really keeping up with the pace of change of work and how people are being paid. And um, so, yeah, so those are those are two great ideas, I think, um, on how we could improve the future of work. Just on the future of work front, I think, you know, it's more and more people are recognizing this is and, and sort of that same mentoring notion. I think just like people would always look around for, uh, hopefully, mentors in their the companies where they worked, especially as more and more younger um, or, or people more at the start of their career are starting to adopt the freelance gig lifestyle. I think there needs to be more mentoring in the, the freelance community. So figuring out ways that folks just starting can be helped by folks who have done it longer without feeling that, you know, I'm giving away trade secrets or something. I mean, we all sort of are building this new world of work together. So let's help each other out along the way. Yeah, that's a great point, especially as, you know, kind of the workforce shifts so that people even coming out of school or even not coming out of school, whatever, just like you could be approaching your first job this way, right? You could be approaching your first job independently. And um, so, yeah, having kind of that better community element of, you know, mentors and um, people helping people. Um, that's a, I think that's a great point. There's a very cool platform, and um, I haven't connected with them lately, but I know they're still they're still doing some cool stuff called Boonal. Um, and it was a guy who came out of the design school at the University of Rochester, and he realized there wasn't a way to get started as a creative freelancer. So he teamed up with the design school and said, look, I want to start this platform for your students to get gigs while they're in design school so that when they go out on their own, once they graduate, they actually have a portfolio of stuff. So it really is almost like an, uh, an apprenticeship platform, if you will. But, you know, now they're even doing sort of recognition programs of people that have gotten a lot of gigs and, 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 you know, had great reviews, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I think I, I thought that was such a great idea because the thing that also isn't keeping pace with the future of work is the educational system in America. So, you know, the more that the educational system can focus much more on the attributes that not so much uh, wrote knowledge, but, you know, developing resilience and critical thinking and better communication skills and all that, that will be far more important. Yep. Yeah. No, that's great. And what was the name of that uh, platform again? Boonal? Yeah, it was kind of a, uh, was a URL that was available. It sort of sent like Google and, you know. Cool. Well, that's great. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to be on the podcast. It was a great uh, discussion and uh, really enjoyed your, uh, your book as well, Marion. Great. Thank you so much. 
And then for our listeners, if you want to continue this dialogue, you can find Thriving in the Gig Economy, um, as well as Marion's first book, A New Brand of Expertise, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and independent bookstores as well. And I definitely recommend uh, checking them out. Um, and then feel free to reach out to Bunker. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, and as always, thanks for tuning in. And we hope you can join us again on our next episode of Ready, Set, Work. We love to hear from our listeners. If you have ideas, thoughts for guests, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please reach out. Tweet us at BunkerHQ using the hashtag ReadySetWork, or email us directly at hello at buildbunker.com. All right, back to work.